Hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have one, there's one in the Bible, uh, in, in the Bible in front of you, in the pew rack in front of you. Um, and the page number is something like 1780-something. I'll tell you for sure in just a second. If you're a table of contents user still. Let's see. It's before 2 Corinthians. Uh, 1780 is the page number. Let's see how that goes. I switched phones, so I don't have my normal stopwatch up here to know where I am. So, last service I preached for like an hour and 15 minutes. So, I'm just kidding, that didn't happen. Um, so, um, I should say this before I read this, particularly if you're a visitor or you don't go to church very often. Um, so this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. And we've been preaching through the whole book because it's going to sound to you like I picked a very self-serving passage for this morning. And I promise this is just the next passage and I have to preach it or I'm being dishonest, okay? So, um, and I promise the sermon will not be on what you think it is after you hear me read it, okay? So just hang in there. I'm going to read verses uh, 1, to, 1 through 18, okay? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Should he say this? He Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes. This was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge so as not to make use of my rights in preaching it. This passage, though it seems to talk about a lot about paying people, particularly people in ministry, 
is not primarily about that. Chapter 9 is really an extension and an illustration. It's an example of the argument he made in chapter 8. He's just going on. All through chapter 8, he argued that the way you use your freedom, your rights, and your spiritual knowledge has to be used in relationship to love of God and love of others. Because if you don't, then you will use your freedom and your knowledge to hurt other people because you'll use it in self-justifying and self-satisfying ways. And the main thing he focused on was knowledge. But in this chapter, he focuses on freedom. In the last chapter, he focused on what using your freedom and your rights and your knowledge, however you want, would do to a, a person who hadn't been a Christian very long, who didn't really understand certain things about Christian theology. And something you might do because you understand theology a lot better and you might know you're free in Christ to do it, might send a different kind of message to somebody who's a novice in Christ, and they might think something that's theologically false while, because of how you live out something that's theologically true, such that your knowledge would actually create a worse ignorance in somebody else, an end that's dramatically unloving, right? Focus in chapter 8 was novice or younger or weaker conscience Christians. In this chapter, it's non-Christians. And, the relation, and it's about the relationship of how we use our rights in relationship to them and our freedom. Now, um, so... Uh, and let me, let me just say this so that we can go on. You can just get this out of your head, okay? Um, High Point pays me great. The way churches are supposed to work is um, pastors aren't supposed to be greedy and boards are, and churches are supposed to be generous. And as long as the church is out generousing the pastor, the pastor is thankful and the church is generous, it all works fantastic. And if the church decides to make the pastor humble and the, and the, the pastor decides to stand up for his rights, then it just goes real ugly. It's just that's how it works. And right now we're on plan A here at High Point. And it's been wonderful, okay? So just, you don't have to think anything about how this relates to me, okay? This relates to us in relationship of our freedom and our rights in relationship to love, okay? Great. So, okay, so think about this question. What are your most sacred rights? Write them down on your small group questions sheet note place thing. I mean, what are your rights? What are the rights that are the most sacred and your fundamental rights that nobody has the right to take away from you? No private citizen and no government. No, no, nobody. They're conferred on you by God or by something else, some other philosophy you like, and, and you believe they're fundamentally yours. What are they? Right? If you're a kid of um, Jeffersonian democracy, you might jump right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You might believe that you have the right to not be illegitimately searched and seizured. You know, a lot of teenagers like to quote that one about their room, you know. Um, you know, it might be your right to protect your life. Um, you know, if you could be a Second Amendment or you could be a First Amendment, right? I have the right to say whatever the heck I want, even if it's mean. Um, but most people believe in some kind of group of rights that nobody has the right to take away from them, right? Um, and most of the ones I mentioned, I mean, I, there's some others that look for me, like, for example, I believe nobody has the right to take my children away from me, except for extre very extreme circumstances. Um, I, you know, I believe that people have the right for their possessions not to be plundered. They have the right to not be physically or sexually abused. I mean, more than just what's covered in the, the Bill of Rights, for example. Um, but here's, here's one of the things that I think it's important. Um, if we listen to the argument of chapters 8 to 10, one of the things we're going to realize when we come to understand the, the deeper workings of the Christian message is the terrifying truth that all of these rights that we think we have are undone by the gospel. 
That is, that they're not undone by the tyranny of religious rules. They're undone by the vibrancy of self-sacrificial love. That is, that there is virtually no right that love cannot undo because, and here's why, because love doesn't take the right away from you. It motivates you to voluntarily leave it aside. And therefore, it can undo even your most basic rights because you choose to give them up for the purpose of love. So the idea that Christianity helps us get over sin is a terrible reduction of what Christianity is all about. Christianity won't just help you get over your sin. It will help you get over being alive. Every martyr laid down their life because of the purposes of love. Every martyr had the right to live, but everyone who was truly a martyr chose to die. And that, that's the really scary thing about Christian faith, is what, what a tyrannical dictator can't accomplish with a million swords. Love is freely offered every day by anyone who loves anything. And that's why love is so dangerous. Everybody waddles about proclaiming that they're big fans of love. Well, you better hold on a second and think about what you're saying. There's this great essay by G.K. Chesterton in that book, um, Brave New Family, where it talks about, there was, it was kind of, um, I think it was George Bernard Shaw that was kind of famous in that period in England to say, you know, um, marriage is really against love. Because love is this free thing that we have And then, you know, it's spontaneous And whatever. It's, it's old fogies and people who are trying to create social orders That want lovers to make promises to each other You know, lovers need no promises And lovers want to make no promises Until we tell them they have to To which G.K. Chesterton um, said That's just a bunch of poppycock he's like, uh, he's like, it makes me think you've never been a young lover he said, he said, the problem with young lovers is not that they don't want to make any promises. It's that they want to make a thousand rash promises. The first thing that happens when someone is truly taken with another person is they want to promise all kinds of ridiculous things together. I'll give you the moon. It's an orbiting sphere. You can't even get it. You know, like, I'll be with you forever and I'll blah, 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 blah. Lovers spontaneously make scores of promises. Nobody has to tell them to do it. They do it naturally. Marriage just organizes it a little and holds them a little bit accountable for it. That's all. And that's what love is like. Love creates promises. And what are promises? They're vocalized choices to lay aside rights for the good of another. That's what a promise is. I mean, what, what happens in a marriage ceremony? People get up and they say in front of their family and friends, I am going to lay aside many of my rights that I would have as a single person for the purposes of love because we're going to be united in a marriage. And so therefore, love is going to overtake many of the rights I would have had had I not made this promise and commitment, right? And you, and you can add in that parenting too. I mean, how many decent human rights do we give up because we have children? You know, you could put in your list the right to sleep sometimes, Right? Or even friendship. The minute you don't go to the restaurant you want to to go to the one they want to, you're giving up your right to eat where you want to because of who you're going to eat with. Even friendship is based in love 
and in, in some measure of self-sacrifice that goes along with it, the whole world is full of love, and love always creates constant self-sacrifice. And so when, and see, this mentality was lacking in Corinth. They didn't see the connection between freedom, rights, and the freedom that the gospel gives, that religious knowledge, and a profound theology of love that would cause them to lay aside these freedoms and rights, oftentimes for the purposes of the good of others and the glory of God. I mean, when we really are captivated in our minds by the radiation of the glory of God to all people, that's what we want. We want people to see what God is really like. Everything that can be said about God that is true and that is amazing, when that comes out from God and is seen by us, it radiates to us. It is the display of God's glory, and that is the most valuable thing, the most pleasurable thing, the most intense thing. It is the best thing that exists, and we should care about that, and we should want all people to see it. And the more they see it, the happier they will be, and the longer they will be happy that way. And we should also want care for the real welfare of all people. We should care for the true good of another. And in the Christian message, those two things are the same thing. You don't have to scurry about and be like, well, I'm supposed to love everybody, and I'm supposed to care about the glory of God. And, and see, the, the fun thing about the Christian message is the glory of God displayed to all people and the true welfare of every human being is the exact same thing. And all the other things we think about are details that radiate out from it. But there is a true center of both of those things. And when you are captivated by the need of all people to experience the glory of God and the true welfare of every human being, the thing that you're drawn to by two vectors to a single center is what we call in Christianity the gospel. That is, the good news that God's glory has been sufficiently revealed in the man Jesus Christ who came and through his life, death, and resurrection displayed God, his compassion, his justice, his truth, his beauty, and he has displayed it to all people so that if they come to it and believe it, all of the deepest needs that they have will be met in that message and from the God who offers all of his resources on the basis of accepting that offer of grace and favor, forgiveness, and love that comes through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the good news. The good news is, is that the glory of God and the good of all people are not mutually exclusive. They have a real center. And if you're committed to both, you can still be committed to one thing, the gospel. And then everything else that we do radiates out from that. What does the gospel produce in human life? Well, all kinds of social goods and all kinds of psychological goods and all kinds of economic goods and all kinds of, but they radiate out from the center that we're fundamentally most interested in and committed to, the gospel. And you see, if you believe that, then one of the things that love will always do is it will endeavor to create a life that does nothing to hinder the gospel. And if you look at chapter 9 in 1 Corinthians, um, there's two parts of the chapter. The first part of the chapter is do nothing to hinder the gospel. Do nothing do nothing. Use love in such a way, live out love in such a way that you do nothing to hinder the gospel because it is the glory of God radiated and it is the greatest need of all people. Do nothing to get in the way of that. And then the second half of the chapter is do everything to advance it. Do nothing to hinder it, verses 1 to 18, and verses 19 to the end, do everything to advance it because it is the glory of God radiated and the true good of all people. 
Okay, so there's, I want to I go over four parts to this in, in Paul's argument here, okay? So let's go through the passage. The first is, there's the slide. You can write that down. Okay, that was last week. Let's go to this. Okay, the gospel confers some rights absolutely. The, the gospel or God does confer some rights on human beings absolutely. That's totally true. Love doesn't destroy rights. It causes us to forego rights. That's why you can't tell me what rights I have to forego. I have them. You have to respect them. But I can put them aside voluntarily. Okay? So, in fact, almost all the rights that we think of as, like, in terms of our legal and social lives come in the Western context from Christianity. For example, most of the ones that are part of Republican democracy that we have lived out in America came from the Magna Carta, and the Magna Carta has specific language in it about how God has given rights to people beyond the king. That is, that the noble lords have been given the same rights that the king has been given, therefore the, the king cannot take those rights from the noble lords. When that got permutated into enlightenment democracy, what was said? No, the rights that the king had and the lords, noble lords had, everybody has. They're fundamental humanity. They're inalienable human rights. And then those rights exist to everybody, therefore the people are higher than the government. Hence, you can get a democracy and a representative, blah, 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 blah. That all flows out of that. But it all came from, in the Western tradition, a belief that God confers rights on people. Now, when you begin to read the New Testament, what you realize is that that's just the first little tiny start. You can believe in just natural theology and believe that, but when you begin to believe in Jesus, what you begin to realize is, is that the problem in Christianity is not too little freedom, but too much. When you read the book of 1 Corinthians here, what, if you read that book in its context and try to figure out what's going on, you're not going to get the idea that these are people repressed by tyrannically multiplied religious laws that they all have to follow. The problem here is these people are buck nuts crazy and they don't have enough organizing them. They need more structure because they realize that in Christ they have all this freedom and so they can do it. And so they think, you know, they're, they're free to do whatever they want to and they're doing some stuff that they're, they're really not free in love to do. And so when you, so look at the passage, right? There's basically four steps of logic here. The first is he's like, look, I'm an apostle. You should know that. Premise one is Paul really is an apostle, right? And he's like, look, I met the risen Lord Jesus. He told me to go preach the gospel. And the fact that you exist as a church is just evidence that that's true, right? I mean, an apostle is somebody who is sent to bring a message to people. The fact that there was a Corinthian church means he brought them the message and they believed it. And he, so he's really an apostle. So he's like, look, even if other people don't, I believe I'm an apostle. You should. Because you've believed the message, so obviously I brought it to you, and it affected you, right? So premise one, he's an apostle. And then he says, now listen, what are the rights of an apostle? And there's two main ones he argues for, right? He says they have the right to be paid, and they have the right to have a wife if they want one, right? They're, they're free to do both those things. They shouldn't be impoverished so much they couldn't get married, and they shouldn't, and they shouldn't have to apologize for being paid to make their living from the gospel, Right? Um, and so he comes and he, he basically argues four different ways. He says, he says, okay, first of all, just think about life, right? Do soldiers serve as soldiers usually just for the money? Well, I mean, some might, but most people believe that there's some nobility to fight for the people in country that they love. But does that mean that because they love the people and country behind them, that they should therefore do everything they do for free? He's like, no, nobody serves as a soldier at their own expense. They're paid to be a soldier, even though they do it out of love and for the right reasons, right? 
Same thing with somebody who runs a vineyard, right? Somebody, somebody who works a vineyard. Is working a vineyard intrinsically good? Yes, growing things for the good of others is intrinsically good. Does that mean that they should do it for free? No. They should, if they grow a crop, they have every right to expect to have some share in it. Now, it might not be the share they want, but it's some share, right? Same thing with somebody who's out with a sheep. They're out with a sheep. Do they have the right, do, have they have the right to starve while they're taking care of your food? Right? No. They have a right to the flock, to the extent of their maintenance. Right? And he's like, everybody knows this, so why don't you think a pastor or a missionary or an apostle or whatever has that right? They have that right. It's not cynical, it's not stupid, and it's not— See, if you believe that that's wrong, it's because you believe that spiritual work is worthless. That's what you believe. You just ought to admit it to yourself. If you believe that people who do ministry are essentially rent seekers, they don't offer anything, they just want money, um, then what you believe is what, the, what they do isn't valuable. Or you believe that what's done materially is fundamentally more value than the work that's done spiritually, which means you're not a Christian, right? I'm not trying to be mean, it's just deductive logic. If we, if we believe in God and that the gospel is one of the most valuable things in the world, we ought to believe that if that person reaps some, some physical reward for their maintenance, not for their, not for their riches, but simply for their maintenance, we should be generous about that. It's, it's in, but yet there are passages in the Bible that make very clear that that's not unlimited. For example, one of the reasons we can go after health wealth preachers is that in 1 Timothy, Paul says, listen, Timothy, you should be after food, clothing, and a place to stay. And that's it. You start getting beyond that, and avarice starts to come in, and envy starts to come in, and it'll defile everything. And in the book of Ezekiel, the shepherds, which are the, the priests, basically, God says, listen, you're the shepherds of my people, and I'm going to kill you because you eat and drink from the flock, but you don't take care of them. You see the logic? You're getting the benefits without doing the work. But that doesn't take away the fact that those who are called to do the work do have the right to the benefits. And he says, now listen, am I just arguing from the secular world, or does the Bible say this, right? And so he quotes Deuteronomy 24, 5, which says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, to which you might say if you were a good inductive Bible student. Um, what's the context there? Well, the answer is there is none. It's a part of Deuteronomy where there's a bunch of laws kind of in a row, and something ends before it, and something starts right after it, and it just is there. Don't muzzle the ox when it's treading out the grain. What on earth does that have to do with this, Right? Now think about it. If you're, if you're treading out grain, treading out grain means harvesting it, okay? So you're, you're coming and you're harvesting, and so you're, you've strapped up this ox and he's harvesting the grain. Now, what's he going to do? What do? What do oxen and horses do when they walk over tasty food? They eat some of it, right? And, and you, what you want to do is you want to feed the ox the grass over here that you didn't grow to sell. It's much cheaper. And so you, could, you put a muzzle on the ox so he can't eat your wheat, and then you feed him later, but he eats the other, he eats the brambles over here, and he's fine. He's got four stomachs. He's going to live, right? So it's just what you do. But what, what the command is saying is he's saying you can't do that because the bottom worker on the totem pole all the way down to the animal has the right to share in the work, the product of the work. Even the ox has the right to take some mouthfuls as he walks along. He doesn't have the right to graze through your field, but as he's plowing, he has the right to stick his nose down and take a mouthful. And how dare you begrudge even your animal that? Right? Do you see where he's going with this? So he says, he says, so would the plowman. Would, and so now move back behind the ox and think about the plowman. 
Should he share? If the ox gets to share in it, shouldn't the plow guy? What do you think God is really doing with that commandment? Do you think it's really just about the ox? No, it's about the ox, and it's about this worker, and it's about the planter, and it's about the thresher. All of them have to be treated fairly, and they have a right to share in the harvest. Now he's like, now apply that spiritually. If I spend years of my life cultivating a crop among you, he's saying, do you really begrudge that I would get any benefit from that? On the technicality that what I did was spiritual and money is physical? When everything I did for your spiritual good was physical? Right? That's the argument. And then he says, and he doesn't even stop there. He gives two more arguments, right? He says, think about the sacrificial system. What used to happen when um, people brought sacrifices to God that were offered by the priest? Who got a share of the meat that was left over from the sacrifice? Did the family get it all? No, there was a portion that was given to the priest, even though the offering was sacrificed to who? God. Right? And then he says, now think about the temple where people would come and bring financial offerings. Who did that money go to? Right? So you see where he's going with this? So, so he gets to the end of this, and, and where are we? He spent 14 verses. He spent two-thirds of the passage arguing that the right of him to be paid as an apostle was absolutely inviolable. That it was commanded at least three places of Scripture. And he actually says— in verse 14, in the same way the Lord, in this context that means Jesus, has said, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. 14 verses, right? All but five of what we're talking about today is about how this absolutely is a priority and this right is absolute, right? But then what does he say? He spends all that time lining it up just so he can say, I had that right and then I didn't use it. You see how he's making a point about love? The point is not that he wants to be paid. The point is not that he's underpaid and underappreciated. The whole point here is everything he had a right to, he forewent for the gospel, that is, for the glory of God and for their good. Which, which brings us to this, that, the two, that those rights that are absolutely confer, conferred by God can also be waived. The rights that the gospel confers also can be waived for its purposes. Does that make sense? So, where am I? Look at verses 12b and and 15. He says, but we did not use any of these rights. In verse 15, I'm sorry, we did not use these rights. In verse 15, he says, but we did not use any of these rights, meaning the, the right to, to be able to have a wife and maintain a family and the right to be paid is actually not the only rights that he had. He actually had more rights than that that he's not even talking about for brevity's sake. He had lots more rights as a human being. And he said, and I didn't actually demand any of them. And what that means, and, and what's the purpose of that? And that's in verse 12. Verse 12 is really the heart of this passage where he says, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I was, I've, I've been trying to find the time, Lisa and I have, have at least has been pushing me on this, and we've, I've been trying to find the time to come up with a list of verses in 1 Corinthians that I think would be great to memorize. From, from some of the different sermons and to get 10 or 12 verses from this book that would be really great to memorize. That's the one to memorize if you're going to commit one to memory. 
I didn't use these rights, but instead I decided I would put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Which, one of the ways that we've been talking on the elder board for some time about sort of, you know, like our mission and core values, blah, 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 and we talked about it at a congregational meeting. And one of the core values we've been talking about and exactly how to talk about it is to not just say that one of our core values is a church's service, because that really doesn't say enough. But that the core value needs to, has to be sacrificial service. That love ought to compel, compel us to serve one another, absolutely. But it ought to compel us to serve one another in such a way that we actually lay down real rights in sacrificial ways that cost us for each other. Beca- for, for the reasons that because of the gospel, it is, that is the work of compassion, but also in reality, it's the price of influence. It's the price of influence. And let me, let me expound on that. Let's go to number three. So, you know, why would you do that? If you have these rights, and, but you can forego them for the gospel, why would you do that? And here's why. Because to do so is loving if it makes the gospel more believable to others. If it takes away hindrances that people have for believing. People, the, people don't believe for lots of reasons. Some are a lack of a positive reason. And we have to do things to advance the gospel. But for some of them, they don't believe for negative reasons. There are hindrances in their life. And until somebody works or does something loving to try to remove those hindrances, they remain roadblocks to those people coming to the thing that is, that is the most for their good and for the greatest glory of God. And so when we, when we forego our rights in order to take away a hindrance so that people can more see, clearly see the gospel, there's two things that we do that, that, that really helps. The first is, is that it communicates our true values, and the second one is that it remo- removes confusion for them. So think, think about it this way. Um, why did Paul decide to forego that right? He had the right to be paid. Corinth was one of the most prosperous cities in Greece. They had the money. So why did he work on a side job, have a couple other guys work in a side job, and get money from other people so that he wouldn't have them pay him? Right? Well, see, it it was a reason of context. Because in that city, what was the most common for people who went around and preached was that these people were, they were, they were paid teachers and they would, they would, because there weren't universities, people who wanted to have their children be successful in the main arts that required speaking, politics, law, merchant businesses, and so on, they, because there's no TVs, there's no, public speaking was the quintessential attribute everybody needed to be successful. Um, The better you were, the better taught you were in rhetoric and persuasive speech and so on, the more likely by far you would be to be financially successful. So there's all these people coming through who are these sorts of teachers. They're very eloquent. They're preaching some kind of philosophy because they don't say, I'm eloquent, pay me. They come in and they, they teach some philosophy, some wisdom, some something, and then they gather students and they're paid very handsomely to make other people's kids successful. So people listen to them for personal gain and they're a little cynical because they know the philosophy. They don't really mean it all that much. They're really there just to teach. And so Paul comes in in that context, and you see, if he came in and he had people pay him and he preached his gospel, you see how they just think he's just another guy? People come through Corinth all the time. There's boats that come in all the time. Some dude gets off, preaches something. He wants students. He wants to be paid. And and Paul's not even that good a speaker. He's not as good as most of these guys, speaking-wise. And so in chapter 2, he said, I intentionally didn't use all the rhetorical flair. I just preached it. And here he says, and I didn't take any of that money. Why? Because he had to undermine 
their cynicism. He had to remove one of their hindrances, and to remove their hindrance cost him dearly. You see? It cost him dearly. But he believed that it would help them believe the gospel because it would separate him from these other speakers who didn't really believe what they were teaching and who they saw as just people who were running a business. He wanted to be, to be seen as somebody who was more like a prophet, who was coming to teach a message to people. They, they didn't have to give him anything. It was just the truth, and he'd come to deliver it, and they should believe it. And the way he saw to do that was by not taking any money. And so he was willing to forego the comfort of a wife— the comfort of a home, the comfort of his country, the comfort of a people that spoke his language, and his right to remuneration. He put all those rights aside so that the Corinthians could see and believe the gospel because his life was committed because of love to make sure he did nothing to hinder the gospel but do everything to advance it. And in Christian ministry, when we talk about how to do this, the word that's used for this is called contextualization. 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 That's that seven syllables. Boom, right? That's a Madison word there now. And the, the idea for, of contextualization is, is that you set up what you're going to do to fit the context in which you're going to do it. What you say matters, but what people hear matters. And so what do you need to know about the questions your neighbors are really asking the language they really speak, the hindrances they really feel, and the positive things they've never heard. So that the, the, what our message is will be contextualized to remove the hindrances and offer anything we can so that people can believe. That's what missions is. When we say that we're a missions church and we care about missions, what are we doing? We're sending people across cultural lines where contextualization is dramatically necessary, fundamentally. Usually across language lines, but more than that, cultural values. And so, so that's why missionaries are a specific kind of person. It's a specific vocation, and they're a specific subset of people in full-time ministry because they not only need to know how to preach the gospel, they have to know twice as much as I know. They have to know how to do all this gospel preaching stuff, and they have to know how to do sociological contextualization wherever they go. Now, I say that. I'm being facetious because obviously I have to do that too, right? But they have to do it across language lines and all that kind of stuff, which is harder. But here's the thing. It's also totally critical for us too. We have to contextualize. And that's why actually context is going to be one of our core values because I want our elders and our leaders and our staff and the people who lead stuff to be thinking about this all the time. How do we preach and live the gospel so that Madisonians, not just humans, but so that Madisonians will see and love and believe the gospel. The hindrances that stand between people and Jesus in this city are different. When I pastored in Florida, if I said that I owned a handgun, people wanted to believe in Jesus. They were just like, he's a real dude. Okay, I can follow that, you know? And, and, and there were a lot of things that I could say that would endear people. If I, but if I spoke too intellectually there, it wasn't—some other people aren't stupid, but they value culturally common sense. And so if you gussy things up in academic language, they immediately distrust you because they think you're trying to talk over their heads or trying to conceal the truth. Otherwise, you just speak plainly. You see? And so in that context, you've got to just shoot it the way it is, say, exact, say exactly what you're saying, saying it simply, concisely, and clearly, right? Whereas in Madison, you've got to 
you've got to speak more intellectually. You've got you've to put the stuff around it. You've got to talk about how the Bible does relate to these things, and you've got to break down a bunch of secular superstructure that wasn't a big deal when I was in the South. In the South, people had been hurt by the church. They were Christ-haunted people. They found the gospel generally conceivable, but they just usually they'd been to a bad church where somebody only preached about hell all the time, and they just didn't like it. And so you had to be, put together a church that was likable and loving, and if you could do that, people would come, and they'd come back to Jesus. That's not true here. We can be nice people. Our, our neighbors are still going to think we're stupid. And unless we figure out a way to be Christians in this context, we can't do it. And that's part of removing hindrances from the gospel. One of the reasons why I read as much as you isn't just because I like to read. I do, and I'm, I'm curious. But one of the reasons I read this book instead of that book is because I want to figure out how to remove more hindrances more roadblocks from the people I preach to and the people I talk to. Because I want my life to be set up in such a way as I don't put hindrances in front of people in them coming to the gospel. It's one of the reasons I have rain barrels at my house and I grow an organic garden. <laughs> am I learning to like that stuff? Of course I am. They are, those are intrinsically worthwhile things. I like environmental sustainability, but I didn't give it a, a... I didn't care about it as much. <laughs> See, I just tried to not put a stumbling block in front of you. But I didn't care about it as much when I was in Florida. Right? I, because if you didn't recycle there, it didn't mean you were Satan. It just means you didn't want to drive to go deliver your stuff, right? But here, if, you know, it matters to people, right? And, it, and so what you do is you say, but wait a second, wait a second. It's not, contextualization isn't just doing what they like. It's to say, no, actually, in your cultural narrative, recycling is important. But guess what? It is important. In, in the cultural narrative of Madisonians, care of the earth is a higher value. And we can embrace that. Why don't we embrace that? Why should I come from the South and say, no gun rights is? I understand why they embraced that there. And within that cultural narrative, I had to figure out what in, what in Southern culture, for example, the, the, the value of hospitality in Southern culture is really big. To the point where Northerners get frustrated because you're like, why aren't you telling me the truth? Well, it's because in Southern culture, it's more important that you feel good than that I say exactly what I'm thinking, right? And so we say, bless your heart instead of you're a big, dumb something, right? But that's a cultural value. But hospitality is intrinsically good. Right? When I go to India and I can't get people to tell me the truth, it's not because they're liars. It's because in their culture, making me feel welcome and cared about and respected and honored is more important than telling me I'm preaching too long. Right? Whereas here, people just be like, man, could you just go on a little longer, honestly? Why? Because, you see, in our culture, if you're in the sort of cold culture that is task-oriented and so on, candor means you care. Right? That's why people, people come to me Because I grew up in New York You come to me and tell me I'm a big dumb idiot And I'm, pr I'm, I'm likely to hug you Why? Because I'm from a culture In which candor means you care You see, if you don't say anything You just leave, go to another church Something like that That'll hurt my feelings So if that's what you want to hurt me Just don't talk to me, right? But if you come and you're like Man, why do you do it that way? Blah, blah, blah Even if you're a little mean I'll feel like you care about me But if I do that in Panama City, Florida That did not work I tried it didn't work. They're like, why are you a jerk? Because, e and even in different parts of Madison, and with different people in Madison, contextualization is different. But are you willing to lay down your rights and to put aside some of your freedoms to take every hindrance out of the way possible for people for whom the greatest glory of God and the greatest good of them is for them to see the gospel and believe it and embrace it and live it and enjoy it? 
And a lot of times it's very little things, and sometimes it's very big things. Which brings us to this last bit, which is kind of the odd verses that are a little weird that people tend to skip over. And that's where Paul basically argues that the sacrifices that he makes are a reward. Not that the sacrifices or the rights that he's put aside are getting for him a reward. He believes that too. And he says that in verse 24. He says that by doing this, I get to share in the blessings of the gospel, right? But he actually doesn't, what he actually says is, is that offering the gospel to people free is his reward. It is the reward. Here, look at these verses again. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I preach it voluntarily, I have reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. You see what he's saying? Now this is a little, it's a little touchy, but think about this. He, he's just basically said he has every right to be paid, but he doesn't really need that. Now wh- what will cynical people take from that? He's fishing for cash, right? That's what cynical people say. Well, he's saying he doesn't want it, but what he really wants is for us to kick in, right? And he's saying, listen, I'm not writing this for that reason. In fact, I would actually rather die than get money from you. Which could, now, that now you're insulted, right? You're like, oh, well, aren't you? <laughs> right? And then he says, basically, that when he preaches the gospel, he says, um, he says, yeah, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach the gospel. Now, um, that, a lot of preachers really like this. And a lot of people in ministry, I'm compelled to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. And they go, Paul was so taken with the gospel. It was so part of him that it was involuntary. It just came out of him, and he couldn't stop, and it was like a fire in his bones. Now listen, if you want to make that point, you can. It's in Jeremiah 20, I think, verse 6, where he says, Your word is like a fire shut up in my bones. I'm, I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That verse. Go there for that, because that's not what this means. What this means is, Um, Jesus is forcing him to preach the gospel because when he was on the road to Damascus and he was persecuting the church, Jesus showed up and he said, Paul, you shouldn't be persecuting me. And Paul was like, okay. And he's like, you need to go and preach. I'm sending you, right? And then there's this whole thing where Paul gets commissioned. He sent his apostle. Now, Paul doesn't have a choice. He has been explicitly commanded by the risen Jesus to go preach the gospel. He's not doing it voluntarily. He has to do it. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, i.e., I am going to hell if I don't do this. Like, I, I have no choice. I have to do this. I'm not doing this because I love Jesus so much. He is doing it for that, but it's not within the realm of an elective. It's within the realm of a necessary action. And so, and so what he's saying is he's saying, so if that's true, what, do I, what am I doing that I get to do that I don't have to do, right? Right, I mean, do, I mean should I go around thinking that my reward in the gospel is that I, I'm not committing adultery? You know, no, I have to do that. But what, what do you do that you don't have to do? What have you done for love's sake? What, what do you have the freedom to do and the right to keep for yourself that you choose to put aside because you want to do it? Because the gospel is great. And what he says is, he says, I, and for me, it's not being a missionary. I had to be a missionary. He said, but here's what I added. To make sure there was no hindrance between you and the gospel, I offered it free. That's what I added. That's what he's saying, you see? If I preach voluntarily, I do have a reward, right? But he's like, but it's not for me. 
If it's not voluntary, I'm just discharging the trust. So then what is my reward, right? What can I add out of love to remove a hindrance so that I can say that I did more than just what was expected of me, because, but, but love changed me. It wasn't just the command. Love changed me. I wanted to display the glory of God and live for the good of all people. What was it? He says, for me it was just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. Meaning, and so not use my rights in preaching it. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I... And he's not just saying, I'm doing this to get a reward. You see how he's saying, this is the reward. What is my reward? This. In preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. That is the reward. That he gets to do something he didn't have to do. That is its own reward. And in doing so, the reason it's a reward is because he gets to participate in the gospel freely. And he says, because of that, in verse 24, he says, in doing so, I'll get to fully share in its blessing. Because what happens, I will be a part of it. I will be an investor, and I will have given myself entirely to. I won't think of it as the great game I watched on TV. I'll think of it as the great game that I was in. On a level that I wanted to be. And to demonstrate that the things God forced him to do, he didn't begrudge because he did more. You know, like if your spouse says, hey, will you do this for me? And you say, yes. And she's wondering whether or not you're doing it because you're begrudging or not, or just because you have to, or she'll get angry, or whether you do it because you love her. Well, what's one way to do, to tell her that you, you wanted to do the thing she asked you to do? To do more, right? Tack something onto it. Don't do the minimum. Because if you do that, you're demonstrating, not only was I glad to do what you wanted me to do, I was also glad to do more. It's one of the only ways to show God that you're glad to do the things you have to do in addition to the things you want to add to it that is its own reward and also brings a reward. Now, let me just end with this quickly, and that is, see, I'm right on target. If you're looking at your watch, that's good. Is, where did Paul get this, right? I mean, where did, did he just make this up? Right? He didn't just make this up. He got this from the Savior, didn't he? This is just straight Jesus. I mean, go back to the beginning of the message and think about the list of rights, right? The rights that any human being ought to have. And you just ask yourself, which of these rights did Jesus keep for himself? Just ask yourself. Which of these rights or any others did Jesus keep for himself? And then ask, ask and you might say, oh, the children won, right? But do you remember what it says in Isaiah 53? And who can speak of his descendants? For his line was cut off from the earth, right? Was Jesus going to get married and have kids? No. But as a human being, was it within his right to do that and so that nobody had the right to kill him and keep him from doing it? Yes. It was within his human right that he had as being fully man. And when he submitted himself to death, he submitted himself to everything you lose when you lose your life. All the comforts. And then add to this the fact that Jesus had a bunch of rights that were divine rights, that weren't human rights. They were divine rights. They were above and beyond human rights. And which of those did he keep? To the point where Philippians 2 just simply says that Jesus just emptied himself and leaves it vague. Because our minds probably can't even put together some of the rights he forewent. We can sort of understand some of the human ones, but we're not, we don't even get most of the divine ones. And even if we can, we can come up with a vocabulary word to refer to the divine right that he gave up, it's, we still have no conception of the divine right he gave up. And he just laid those down because he cared about, he valued the glory of God and he had compassion for all of humanity. His love towards God's glory was that he valued it properly. 
and therefore he adored it. And he loved humanity in the sense that he had compassion for us. The fact that we were wretched enemies of God mattered to him. And he wanted to bring us to the thing we needed most as wretched enemies of God, the gospel that he created, the way to become God's children and friend and heir and soldier and child and bride and people. And in doing so, he did nothing, Jesus did nothing to hinder the gospel. And he did everything to advance it. And if we love the Savior and love people, we're going to do the same thing with our freedoms. If our hearts are strengthened by the gospel rather than hardened by it, we're going to be willing to make crazy promises and fling away our freedoms and our rights many times. And that casting aside of freedom and rights for love is something that tyranny and religion can never do. If your Christian faith is really just a moralism, you can never do this. You can never do it. You can never, you can never be like that because you'll never have the motivation. It'll never be out of love. It'll never be for joy. Everything will be in the realm of the things you have to do. You'll never ask yourself the question, forget the things I have to do. Beyond that, what can I add to it? What freedom or right can I throw away? For the sake of God's glory and the good of all people, what hindrance can I remove? What thing can I advance? Beyond, beyond, the, beyond the, the commandments. You, you look at the Bible commandments and you'll, you'll see that as this, the simplest set of rules that anybody with any sense would of course do and you live in a completely different world than that. Where you look at the Bible commandments and you literally laugh. Who would have to, you, where you'd say, who would have to be told to do that? Rather than, God is so mean that he makes me do that. Only love can make rights seem like a hindrance and make lovers anxiously ready to make any promise and forgo any right out of love. And it is only love that can make these people call such sacrifice not a duty, but a reward. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you that um, Paul was crazy and that Jesus was um, loving. Thank you for the, the, the compassion to think that what we would say to ourselves and what Paul would say to this church, you have said to yourself, you have flung aside your freedoms and you flung aside your rights out of compassion for us and out of a true value of your own glory so that we would see it and savor it. We would enjoy it forever. That the true need of all of us would be met in the real radiance of your glory that came together in the life of resurrection of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray, Father, you would help us to believe in that more fully. I pray anybody who hasn't believed in that would be putting their faith in that right now, that you'd be enabling them by your spirit to believe fully and wholeheartedly in Jesus, to lay aside their freedoms to receive the freedom that Jesus had. One of those freedoms being the right to forego freedom for some greater, more glorious, more beautiful, more honorable, stronger purpose. Help us to be a people so changed by you doing that that it becomes second nature to us and that the world would really say how they love each other and us. Amen.